0: This is A Drink with a Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter.
1: And I'm Seth Haynes.
0: Seth, what you drinking this afternoon?
1: Well, I am drinking coffee,
0: mm-hmm.
1: of course, from my favorite little establishment, Hail Fellow, Well-Met. Mm-hmm. Um, it is Onyx Coffee. Yes, I am lucky to have it right below my... Office, but the real beauty of this coffee was that I ordered it with um my favorite breakfast, which I didn't eat my favorite breakfast until after eleven. So that should tell you how this day is going. Um which down there they have this gluten-free bread and these little eggs that are just perfectly soft boiled and this chili oil, and you just like pour it all together. It's so amazing.
0: That sounds good.
1: So that flavor is nice. still lingering with my coffee. It's really it's very yeah, it's very nice. What That's are you lovely. drinking?
0: I am drinking my hippie cocktail, mocktail, apple cider vinegar in sparky water with salt, which sounds gross, but it's very delicious. And it's good for you. And that's it, the name of my game like,
1: Is it sort of like drinking like uh, oceany vinegar water? That's what That's how it seems to me.
0: It sounds like it would be, but it doesn't taste like that to me. But that being said, I have acquired a taste for apple cider vinegar. And I know many people who have not yet- can't fathom the idea. So I get it. It sounds weird. It might be too weird for some people, but it's very good for your digestion and for your brain and for some other things that I forget what. So that's why I'm doing it.
1: Anyway. Well, I think if there are any bottlers out there who are interested <laughs> in uh, bottling your cocktail mocktail for listeners to drink with a friend, we should brand it and get it out there uh, on the market.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm down for that. Yeah, we could call it a drink for a friend.
1: Or we could just call it a drink.
0: Yeah. There you go. And we can have a whole line. Pretty simple. A drink. That's right. All right. Right. Seth, what is on your mind aside from the huge news of you and Amber's book?
1: Nothing. Nothing is the (laughs) truth aside from that. No. So, yeah. um, For those of you who don't know, who haven't heard by now, my wife, Amber, and I wrote a book. Um, it's been a long, long time in the in the making. Um, it probably took us over two years to write, honestly. Maybe, maybe right at two years to write. And it is called "The Deep Down Things." The Deep Down Things. It's a book about practices that help us move uh, to hope in times of despair. And the title comes from a Gerard uh, mainly Hopkins poem called "God's Grandeur." So, any any Hopkins fans out there? We'll, uh, we'll, we'll recognize uh, the the nod to old uh, GMH.
0: <laughs> I, even though you say it's taken you two years to write, I feel like you guys have talked about this book for longer than that. Like I remember y'all talking about it years ago. So this is a long time coming.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we probably talked about it with you more before – in in a few close friends before we actually got down to the writing Um, but it was one of those books that it, it, there were, there were circumstances that occurred pre COVID that really threw Amber into a, into just like a dark rut, a time of despair. Um, and then like very quickly after that, the pandemic sort of folded down on us, which obviously threw the whole world into a time of despair, Um, and, and then over the course of that year, like things just kept happening, you know, friends got divorced. Um, I lost a friend the following, uh, spring, uh, to suicide. Um, it just kind of felt like the hits kept coming, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so over the course of that time, it was like, how do you like scratch and claw and fight, uh, against this despair that is so suffocating and, and, um, that really did, it really did sort of fall on all of us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, I think the um, phrase that you just said, the hits just keep on coming, could be like the theme of this decade, right? Um, uh, I think absolutely. many of us can point to 2020 and on and, and just feeling that way and probably a few years before that. So um, I think what you are describing is causing probably a lot of listeners to nod their heads in agreement like, yeah, I know what that's like.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I think you're right. I think it was it was definitely pre-COVID. I mean, it it felt like we, you know, a lot of it was political turmoil before that, and and leading up to that, and, and certainly a lot of um, racial and ethnic violence was a was a part of that. I mean, there was so much chaos, um, sort of self-induced chaos on top of that, like. You know, we we weren't really doing the work that we needed to do as a country to uh, acknowledge and lament and repent from the sins of the past. And then we had sort of a chaotic figure at the helm and um, the country was sort of in chaos already. And then when the pandemic hit, it was just like, Katie, bar the door, you know, like, um, and I think that that's kind of the moment. And we, we hear this a lot from readers all the time. It's like that was the moment where everything sort of coalesced.
0: Mm. Yeah. Okay. So whenever y'all announced your book, which is just this past week, you know, I think Amber first and then you, I did a weird thing. Um, I feel, I felt like I had just recently heard on some podcast about um, the idea of despair being a sin, like according to the Hmm. Catholic church. And I thought, that can't be right, is it? So I went and looked it up <laughs> because, because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that sounds awfully like accuse the victim of, of something. Um, and so I did a little deep dive and I found it interesting mm. because, yes, technically the catechism of the Catholic Church says that, but it defines despair really specifically to be hopeless to the point of like com- complete abandonment of all hope mm. that. Like basically nothing is going to, nothing good is going to come from anything. And Mm. that we, it also says, um, and of a lack of having the means required for that end. And I thought that was interesting because I think there is such a idea of being in such a mindset where you just think, absolute hopelessness, but that's kind of rare for most of us. I think most of us, if we were to really admit it, still kind of hold on to a tiny, tiny little, could be a pinprick glimmer of a hope. But, you know, that's what keeps us breathing in and out every day. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. But I think that there are also times when um, that pinprick of hope sort of gets snuffed out. Right, mm-hmm. I think I, I think if we're honest, everyone could admit that that's happened before. So, yeah. To kind of root the story a little bit and not to uh not yeah. to give away all the cabbage, but to root the the story a bit. Um, you know, Amber and I had been at a church for a very long time. It was not uh a Catholic church, it was an Anglican church. Um, you know, you will know the story. Some of the listeners will know the story. Um, The year before we actually left that church, I had actually come through RCIA and I had just decided like this, this expression was not it for me. There were a variety of reasons for that, but the primary reason was I had come to believe a certain thing about the Eucharist. And then if you kind of come to believe that thing about the Eucharist, then you sort of look around and you're like, well, what, where else can I go? There's really nowhere else to go. And so I was kind of already on that way and, and, and the priest at my local Catholic church told me on like the weekend before the Easter vigil, he said, You need to wait on your wife. You don't this is not the right time. You need to wait on your wife. Which, you know, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that he was supposed to say that because he's a <laughs> Catholic priest, but he did say that. Yeah. And so I did. I waited and I kind of thought, well that'll be the day. Like I'm never going to become Catholic because that'll be the day. And um and what ended up happening over the course of that next year is it became a very very apparent to Amber um, who was in the ordination process? she was in seminary at the time she was a curate at our local church. Um, it became very apparent to her that the working relationship that she had with um, with the the priest in that expression was 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 not not good. it was not healthy um, it was abusive, it was manipulative it was off mm-hmm. and the hard part about that as a woman in ministry, and I will not go into all the details here. Those, those details are in the book. Those details are for Amber to share maybe at a later time on the podcast, but the difficulty um, as much as I can understand it as a man uh, about this situation for a woman is that you, you, you kind of feel like you have to go along to get along, you Mm -hmm. know, and there comes a point where you cannot go along anymore. And at that point, when you pull out, a lot of times the feeling can be like, oh, man, how did I let it get this far and this dark? And 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 so by the time you're able to kind of get out of the situation to extricate from your situation, it's really too late to say mm. what hope do I have left mm. um, because you've placated and placated and placated for so long. Um, and then when you're finally on the outside, you look back and you're like, oh, man, it is dark out here. And, and that's kind of where Amber – landed um we we left that church um you know we we both wrote in our newsletters pieces of that story this week so you can read there if you want a little bit more of the details um but we left that church and and it took her a really long time to even feel some semblance of hope and when i say a really long time i mean months and months mm-hmm. and months um and in that season the question then became what was i going to do Like, how do you carry hope for someone who feels like they're on their way down into despair? Mm -hmm. Um, And when I look at her life and when I look at that, that moment of what I, you know, I would absolutely have called it despair. It would be very difficult for me to call that, uh, you know, her sin. Uh, Yeah. Now I will say it was the outworkings of some sin, um, but maybe not hers. Um, and, and and then it was very difficult place to say, okay, well, how do we suss this out? How do we work this out? How do I carry hope when she has none? And, and how do we move Mm. into something that looks like hope?
0: Yeah. And so, you know, not again, not to give away the plot twist of the book or something, um, you guys are essay writers and y'all are not tie things up in a pretty little bow type of writers, definitely not in <laughs> no. writers of books. <laughs> um, which is one of your many great virtues. So I say that as a high compliment. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. So therefore, what does a reader like, you know, when we pre-order the book, because we all will, um, we're not gonna expect a how-to. Like how to f- how to get rid of despair in ten easy steps? What what no. what's kind of the the plot and the climax and the resolution?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that we do in the book is that we really turn our eyes towards the saints, and, mm. and when I say saints, I mean capital S saints. Yeah, I get it. There are plenty of people out here who don't, you know, necessarily know the lives of the saints or believe the lives of the saints. Um, But you may have some other like lowercase s saints in your own life, you know, your Nana or whatever, who prayed for you for 15 years or whatever. Um, But what we do is we actually try to turn our faces back towards the saints and we try to say and look at their lives and examine their lives and say, okay, well, how did these people navigate, you know, times of despair? How did Mary Magdalene navigate? you know, navigate a time of despair. It's, it's one, of, one of Amber's pieces. How did uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola navigate a very, very dark season um, of, of something that sounds a lot like despair? Mm-hmm. Um, so what we try to do through the book is say, listen, there's no easy answer for any of this stuff. But what we can do is we can look at the lives of the saints. Mm. We can look at the practices, the historic practices of the church. Um, we can look at the sacramental things that God has created as good for us, and we can from those things sort of piece together um, what does it mean to try to locate places, pockets, spaces of hope uh, in a world that is is very chaotic and, and very despairing. And so Throughout the book, we have these different practices like, hey, you know, go spend some time in a space of hope and go mm. spend some time in the silence. Go spend some time understanding and knowing the saints. Spend some time feasting and enjoying good things. Even when you think the world sucks, everything sucks. The world's so dark. Like make a feast, invite some friends over, like do some of these things that can rekindle hope. And and that's that's kind of the crux of the book is like, what are the ways that we can kindle or rekindle hope, um, particularly when the lights have all but gone out.
0: Yeah. I think even if you don't, quote, believe in the capital S saints, surely enough people know of plenty of good noble people who had sucky things happen to them. You know, if we even think of Job and David, you know, the Psalms are riddled with good people full of despair. And if that made the cut, you know, for us to read however many thousands of years later, that there must be something there in terms of understanding despair as a very normal, um, normal response to the human condition Mm -hmm. of a broken world and Mm -hmm. an antidote to, to despair being like in existence. Like there has to be one otherwise, why would we still be here breathing in and out every day and wrestling with this yeah. despair? You know, yeah. um, something else that comes to mind when you say this, I wrote about this a couple, I want to say a year ago now, but it keeps coming up. Um, this part in Mere Christianity, I believe, when C.S. Lewis talks about how. Um, Oh, I think he was responding to someone who asked, like, why do anything good right now? Like, why grow a garden when we're in the brink of World War II? You know, like, why bother with anything good? And he said that when he was in the trenches in World War One, the thing he frequently noticed was the closer you got to the front, the less you actually talked about the war. And the more you talked about good things, like, mm. you know, jokes or... Reminiscing of good food or whatever. Like, that's what the soldiers talked about. It was those who were like back strategizing in the offices, the colonels and the generals who always talked about the war. Those in the brink of it did not. And so he pointed out the idea that war is a noble thing to die for, but it's not a noble thing to live for. And Mm -hmm. that perhaps there is something to that when you're in the midst of what feels like a war, that's when your focus should be on the good things even more because it's. That that war is not the thing that's worth living for.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great analogy too. Because there's time, there are times too when the war is over. Like I'll just be super real about it. We had dinner last night with some friends,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the friends know the whole story. And um, and at one point, I was just angry. Mm-hmm. I was angry because a lot of this stuff is starting like beginning to be resolved. But it's been four years. Yeah. Like it's been four years. And it took four years to get this stuff, even like the beginnings of resolved. It's taken four years or three and a half years mm. for um people to show up at the door and say, Hey Amber, I believe you mm. like that it shouldn't take three and a half years as particularly when we were talking about you know people who run entire dioceses dioceses who have all the information to yeah. show up and say hey we're really sorry
0: yeah
1: um and so and yet that's like a beautiful thing right they have shown up and said we believe you they have shown up and said we're sorry and yet there's still this like anger in me that it has taken this long and so there's a bit of it that almost, and I'm not saying this is PTSD, but there's a little bit of it that it's like after the war. And yet Mm. I can still feel these, these pangs of anger, these pangs of despair sort of come up. And, and the truth is, I'm like, I'm not in the war anymore. Mm. We're not, we're not we're not there anymore. And so instead of turning my eyes in gratitude to the hopeful things of, okay, things are changing. Okay. Apologies are being made. Okay. You know, there's some movement on these fronts. Um, I, I tend to go back to the baser nature of myself and say, okay, but I'm really pissed off about it. Um, and so there is that, there's that like continual movement, like even now that we're out of the war, it's still not time to dwell on the despairing things. It's still time to dwell on the hopeful things. And that's the spiritual practice that I'm you know, I'm still working on, it. I've written a book and I'm still working on it.
0: And I'm sure there is somebody listening and there will be somebody reading your book who is in the brink or is in the midst of that war. You know, they they are right in the thick of it and they need that reminder that there is a reason yeah. to get up in the morning, you know, that yeah. not all is lost.
1: Yeah. We don't give up. And I think that's one of the things that was so difficult about that season so it was in that, that. That was in the transition of twenty nineteen to twenty twenty when it all sort of started, and then obviously the pandemic hit. And on Good Friday, the following year twenty twenty one, I got a phone call um, from an old friend, and I was super excited to hear from him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I answered the phone. And I was like, you know, very energetic, very excited, very happy. And he didn't – when I said hello and, hey, it's good to hear from you, man, like he didn't say anything for a minute. And then he said, I need to tell you that so-and-so passed away uh, mm-hmm. last night on Good Friday. And um, we were actually – I was dressed to go to the Good Friday service. So Good Friday is forever going to be, you know, marked by this moment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, you know, yeah, I'm an attorney and so I i have a variety of roles in these things. And, and, um, so it wasn't just friend. It was also some, some other, uh, other parts of the story, um, that I haven't shared, but as I started going through documents and writings and lyrics from music that, that, you know, my friend had kept around and I just noticed this theme. It was just despair, 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 despair. And he was just feeding this despair for this Mm -hmm. year of, of lockdown. And, you know, the thing that makes me so angry with him, and yet I love him to death, and I wish we could have this conversation, but the thing that makes me so angry is that he gave up. Like, he didn't find the reason to get out of bed the next morning, um, and I don't blame him for that. I, I'm not, there's there's nothing in my heart that, you know, is judgmental. I'm angry about it yeah. <laughs> um, because he's my friend and I loved him, but it It really just drove the point home to me that like it it it's there's only one point at which it's too late to get out of bed and search for despair. There's only one point, and mm-hmm. that's the point when it's all over mm-hmm. So um I think you're probably right. there are probably people right now who are in that position who are saying like, I just don't want to get up. I don't want to get out of bed. Maybe I don't have suicidal ideation, but I don't want to get out of bed. And my encouragement is like, get out of bed. Yeah. Like get out of bed, put your shoes on, go for a walk. Um, you know, at the risk of being bootstraps, like wash your face, drink a glass of water, mm-hmm. uh, have a, have some, uh, uh, the titious mocktail with apple <laughs> cider vinegar. Um, do what it takes so that you can get enough strength to go to your therapist or your priest or your spiritual director. Yeah. Like do yeah. the things it takes to move forward and find any, 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 any semblance of hope.
0: I remember when I was first diagnosed with clinical depression and this was like a massive case of it when we were living in Turkey, where we actually left the country for a summer, went to the other side of the world and um, to find help because it was, I was in such despair that I could not see out of it. And The therapist, you know, I was, I was also working on medication, seeing what worked, you know, so there was a combination of therapy and, and prescribed meds. But I remember one of the things he said was, or because when I described how it was, it felt impossible to get out of my chair in our living, like, it was like, it was almost like there was a weight on me, preventing me from getting out of my chair. (laughs) And his response to that was, well, get out of the chair. And mm. I just wanted to give him the biggest middle finger, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. come on, did you not just hear what I said? But that's what he said. He said, get out of the chair.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: I it's funny you're saying this because I just hit publish on a piece, like as in minutes ago from when we're recording on my Substack, where I'm talking about this, um, you know, I'm I'm tying it with adolescence right now, like so the age I teach and that I parent that you parent. And um, an increased excuse making with feeling like they can't do the work because of anxiety mm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I get into all that. So I'm not here to at, at all to throw shade on that. 100% understand the reality of that. But my response to that, whenever I get an email at least once a week to like, I didn't do the work because it just causes anxiety in me is to say, or because it stresses me out is like, yeah. I get it kid, but guess what? Do the damn work. And so yeah, that's right. I, I think that's kind of what the answer is because life is hard and that sucks. It is. But life is just hard. It does. Yeah.
1: It is. And it does. And, you know, there's a whole lot of – Yeah, we were talking about this last night at dinner. There are a whole lot of modern gurus and it gets really old. You know, it, like as a man, I'll tell you like what pops up in my feed all the time is like you know, David Goggins and you may not know who David Goggins is, but, um, just do about a five second search and you'll be like, Oh man, <laughs> that's annoying. Okay. And it is annoying. It's mm. super annoying. He's always talking about, you know, stay hard, you know, get up, go out at five o'clock in the morning, run your miles, <laughs> stay hard, you know? Yep, and, yep. Um, but you know, you look at his life and, and, um, you know, the story of his life is super interesting. He was overweight. He was down on himself. He hated himself. And one day he decided no more excuses. He was going to get up and forge his own path through hope. And, and it really is bootstraps. And it's really like so much of it's terrible. But at the same time, so much of it is it like at some points, you just need somebody to say, get out of bed, mm-hmm. you know, go run the miles, uh, do the thing that you don't want to do. Not because that's somehow going to magically fix it. It won't fix it. But neither is lying in the bed. Yeah. Neither is st- staying in the chair, right? It's not going to fix it. Staying in the chair is not going to fix it.
0: Yeah, and, and speaking of terrible gurus, I my a work colleague and I frequently quote just to each other um, that awful Dr. Phil bit that he says when someone makes some excuse. He says, "How's that working out for you?" Right. We will say this all the time regarding our students. Like we'll be talking about like some student said this kind of thing, and we'll say, "Well, like, well, how's that working out for you?" You know, basically copy and paste that to myself i'm saying that to me just as much yeah. like I'll, I'll come up with every yeah. excuse in the book and it's like how's that working out for you you know staying in bed or eating crappy food or just not being a grown-ass adult no doing the thing i know i'm supposed to do so yeah yeah
1: it's and that's i think that's the hard part is like when you are in those moments of hopelessness and depression despair um you almost you almost don't know what to do, you know. And mm-hmm. and 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 here's also an encouragement, and you know, if you're in a good spot, right? If you're in a good spot, look for the people who are not in a good spot, and mm-hmm. and help them find moments of despair too. So here's an example of that. We had these friends, David and Laura Jackson, and I was actually reflecting on this last night too, over over dinner. And um, we you know we were in Children's Hospital for several weeks with Titus years and years and years ago, and. Um, and we had a lot of people just come and say the dumbest things, you know, like Job's friends show up at your door, you know, at, the, yeah. at your hospital room door. And you're like, I'm about to lose my kid. And you're saying like all this stuff about faith and grace and plans and, you know, predestination and whatever. And I'm just like, man, can you not just like give me a cookie and leave?
0: Right. right. Um,
1: so and part of this is because, right, I'm in the middle of despair and and heaping despair on despair or false hope on despair is not not a good thing. Hmm. so we're sitting there in this hospital room and unannounced and unexpected. Of course we're not going anywhere. So obviously unannounced and unexpected, but it doesn't matter. We're still there. Um, some friends, David and Laura Jackson show up. David is uh is a doctor. He's a pediatrician. He um, was not really Titus's pediatrician, but he was in that group and he was in our small community, you know, group and they drove three hours and they came over to the hospital and they said, I don't know what you're going to do for the next three hours, but get out of here. Like take off. Like mm. He's a doctor. He's a pediatrician, right? So he he can cover anything that needs to be covered. Yeah. The doctors have our phone numbers if anything comes up. And uh, it was before I stopped drinking, by the way. So right. the rest of the story is it's kind of funny. Um, so we went to this Mexican restaurant, and we just drank a lot of margaritas and had fajitas. Um, we went to the mall. I got a haircut and a new T-shirt, and Amber bought some things. Um, We were out three hours. And in that moment, like in the dark, literally the darkest moment of our lives up to that point, like we laughed Mm -hmm. that we, we enjoyed each other. I have a photo of Amber from that time of just like her smiling. Mm. Um, And I remember thinking like what a gift that three hours was because for three hours I was relieved from despair. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we don't write about that in the book and I wish I had thought about it beforehand, but. But that that would be an encouragement to those of you who are you know in a good space, like go relieve your friends in despair.
0: that's such good advice that is such a good word because I would say everyone listening is e- in either one of those categories. you're either in the thick of despair or you know someone who is, and so yeah. whoever you are, do that thing you know yeah um that's and, right. and if you're not in the thick of despair, you may be in a year from now because yeah. we all go in and out, and that's just the way life is in this broken world. And that's, that's good words. And I yep. will say the other thing to do is to pre-order your book. And that sounds really, really um, salesy, but I mean it. That's how these things work. I
1: mean, I work. appreciate it. Yeah. That's... And I'm a, I'll am sell it too. I mean, we got to sell, we have yeah. to sell the copies. Yeah. And and let me just, let me just, let's, let's do like a one minute riff Tish, okay. because I don't think that all listeners fully appreciate the power of the pre-sale right? And so, <laughs> it's true. and we don't ever talk about it. We no. never talk about it in the book industry. We should. Yeah, um, I can't tell you how many people I know who have uh, not had enough quantities of books to meet demand on launch day because Amazon looked at the pre-order list and said, oh, there's no demand for this book. And then all of a sudden, 15,000 people order the book and they're like, well, we've got 600 books back there. This Sucks, And then everybody's got to wait two or three weeks. And so one of the things that these these sellers, these retailers do is they actually gauge demand based on pre-orders. And if Mm -hmm. you want to have sufficient amounts to cover what actually comes in on order day, on launch day, we got to have pre-orders and we got to have as many as we can.
0: And I will add to that, similar to what we say, you know, about this podcast, about our newsletters that, hey, you vote with your dollars. And if you That's want right. to see this kind of thing out in the world, you tell these industries with your cash dollars, as, as annoying as that might be sometimes. This is how you tell, you know, the book publishing world, publish more good things, say more yeah. good stuff like this, publish less crap, publish more goodness. Um, and, yeah. and you'll help us do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Publish less kitschy, clean, cliche answers.
0: Yeah. 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 And I mean, I'll just say if you like Seth and Amber's work and you want to help them keep doing what they are doing and help them raise their boys, pre-order their book because that's how this works.
1: Yeah. And also, uh, not just us either, right? Like the next time an author pops up in your feed and says, hey, my book is for pre-order, like, don't I, like I don't wait anymore. I just mm-hmm. do it.
0: I do and that too. The reason too. I just
1: do it is because I know, like, right? You know that if you don't do it, Amazon's gonna, you know, hose them on launch mm-hmm. day, uh, yeah. or Barnes and Noble or whomever. So yeah. yeah, so so please go pre-order. Please uh, yep. pre-order the books of your other uh, writer friends and yep. favorites, and um, help us keep putting out good stuff.
0: Amen. Amen. Good word. All right. So Seth. As we wrap up, what's something adding more goodness and beauty and whatnot to your life?
1: So I don't think I've talked about this on here yet, but I um, have been playing around with a uh, photographic technique called intentional camera movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a technique that people do in black and white and in color. It doesn't really matter, but, but you intentionally set a slower shutter speed to sort of create An uh impressionistic photo instead of a a tack sharp image Mm -hmm. Um, and I've fallen in love with this technique and so I kind of and I'm I'm not a master of it by any stretch of the imagination I'm a dabbler Uh, but I've started to uh, follow the work of a photographer named Olga Karlovac and um, her work is Freaking amazing! Uh, she is on Instagram. She's an absolute master of the technique. Her images are evocative. They're soft. Um, hmm. They're just absolutely unbelievable. And so everybody should go check out Olga Karlovac's work. I think I'm kind of addicted to it.
0: Very cool. Okay. It's yeah. Well, good. We'll put that in the show notes because that sounds really, really cool. And actually, I think of you when I think of that style because you've been a dabbler in that for a while. Like that's not, Mm. this isn't a new interest of yours from what I can see. No, it's not.
1: It's a lot of fun. But then when you find somebody who's actually like, like the person at it, you know, like the master of it, then you're like, oh man, I've got a long way to go.
0: (laughs) It's like when you read a book and you almost get mad that the writer is as good as they are, you know? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Cloud Cuckoo Land, by the way, which we'll talk about soon. Yeah, sure. That's the camp I'm in right now about it. I'm so (laughs) mad at Anthony Doerr. I could curse
0: but right me aside
1: what is one thing that you're listening to reading watching etc etc that's bringing beauty goodness truth to your life
0: same thing regarding the anger at such sheer talent um i just finished for the first time in many years it was a reread for me but first time in a long time uh east of eden i i reread it and it i forgot how good it is like the plot the characters the descriptions the oh my gosh like just the way he describes places and what a evil evil person Kathy is and i mean just, yes <laughs> oh my gosh the God. worst oh my gosh that book it just stayed with me for a good week uh reminded me what good storytelling is like and he is so good i love steinbeck so it's such a it, good book
1: it is good in those first two or three pages i mm. mean the the description of the valley i mean doesn't it just make you want to cry
0: <sighs> it does it does it's so beautiful. and he will have these little you know he has out of nowhere this chapter that's like a page and a half long where he's just like kind of has a side thought he described going to college when aaron goes off to stanford for the first time yep. in like three paragraphs it was like this yeah. is exactly college it was amazing right. i i stopped right. and reread it again cuz i was like this is so good and it has nothing to do with the plot really other than he goes off to college, but it was like Steinbeck just had to say it like this, you know. I just have to get it There's out. Also,
1: he also does this weird like at one point in the book, he like breaks the third wall like really significantly. Yeah, where you're like why are you talking in your voice now to me? Um, but it's so well done that you're like, I could, n- that I would never be able to pull that off, and it yeah. was perfect.
0: Yeah, yeah. So if you haven't read it, uh, dear listener, please. Please read it. It's long. Take your time. There's no hurry. It's not going anywhere, but it's worth reading. So.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: Or listen. I guess you could listen to it. It's there's a good really audiobook actually. It's a really good audiobook.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Amber just finished it. She both listened and read it. She would depending nice. on where she was, she would read her or listen. Yeah. Um and she thought it was beautifully done and she hated all the women. So, there you oh, go. Oh,
0: so true. It's good. All right, guys, time to wrap it up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at a drink with a friend.com. That's also where you can go help support the show by picking up the next round of drinks and help support the show by pre ordering Seth and Amber's book. You can find me and how to connect with me, especially via my newsletter at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, where can people find you and your book besides in the show notes?
1: They can find me on substack at SethHaynes.substack.com. always. One day I'm going to change that URL. I'm going to make it super simple. But until that time, that's where you can find me. Cool. Um, and just use the links there to order yep. uh, my book. Yep. I, I just tell everybody, like, go to Amazon. It's easy.
0: Yeah. We'll, we'll put all the links in the show notes. So you can also just go there and click. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth Haynes. And we'll be back here with you again soon. Thanks for listening.